Hello and welcome. My name is Emily Stefke, and you're listening to Nature's Narrative. Nature's Narrative is a new podcast where we explore environmental policy, wilderness education, and just how we engage with the outdoors through literature and storytelling. Before getting into today's episode on the paradox of permits, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the podcast. I started this podcast because I wanted to see how well we were living up to our ideas about how we engage with nature, how we advocate for it, educate about it, how we expose ourselves and others to it. Are we actually living up to what we say we're hoping for? And what are we even hoping for? It's slippery and it's hard to measure. Nature and our interactions with the environment aren't things I think can be accurately pinned down with statistics or pages of annual reports. National Park's numbers about users and revenues aren't really going to tell us whether people's experiences there were meaningful. It's nuanced, and where do we find those nuances? I say we turn to stories. I think it's worth reading and thinking about people's stories, about their experiences, taking pictures of the Grand Canyon or backpacking in Colorado or being an outdoor educator. I want to turn to both personal stories of mine and people I know or admire, but primarily I want to look at literature. How does the environment speak through our words? And what does it tell us about who we are and our place within a land so much bigger than any one of us individually. It's such a human question, yet perhaps it isn't at all. It's hard to grasp that with anything but stories. A person's experience can't be quantified. But you can take a deeper look at it by looking at their stories, and that's what we're going to do here. In this season of Nature's Narrative, we'll be focusing specifically on texts and experiences related to being outdoors in the Southwest. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the paradox of permits. Are they really protecting the wilderness, or are they just keeping people from accessing public lands? Stick with me, let's explore. This past summer, I was working as an expedition leader for an outdoor education nonprofit. It's called Cottonwood Gulch. The gulch, as we usually call it, is near the barely there small town of Thoreau, up in the northwestern part of New Mexico, around 7,500 feet of elevation. The land is dry, rocky desert with views of mountains and canyons in the distance, dotted with just enough junipers and ponderosa pines and sage bushes to keep me from going totally crazy from the lack of green vegetation. Base camp is a nearly off-the-grid plot of land on the edge of the Cibola National Forest. Now, the Gulch isn't your typical summer camp. It's an expedition-based program, so we spend some time at base camp, but a lot of time driving all over the Four Corner states, car camping between extended periods of time, backpacking. Teenagers fly in from all over the U.S. to spend three to six weeks exploring the Southwest, No cell phones, no internet, no plumbing, no parents, no electricity. Instead, they sleep in open-air cabins or under the stars. They hike, they write letters, they learn traditional native arts like metalsmithing and weaving, learn about dinosaurs and plants and the bugs that bite them, 
they rock climb, they mountain bike, they take care of goats, they take care of each other. At the end of each day, we'd gather around a campfire and teenagers, yes, real live 2019 teenagers, sing cowboy songs, play ridiculous goofy games, talk about their days and sometimes even their dreams, and actually listen to each other. In a word, it was wild. I was leading the Turquoise Trail Expedition, TT for short. Girls heading into their freshman and sophomore years of high school spent five weeks with us adventuring in New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. Meeting these girls on day one, I could tell they were out to accomplish something special. True to TT fashion, they sparkled with their excitement for adventure. On our first full day together, we hiked nearly eight miles up one of the small mountains in the Valles Caldera. It was a haul. We'd take a break at the top of most hills. Nice job. Everybody take a little breather. But these girls had some serious grit. They got stronger and tougher and better at supporting each other as the summer went on. By the middle of our time together, my team and I decided we needed to make sure the rest of our itinerary would give them a capstone backpacking experience to remember. We'd done some relatively flat backpacking in the San Pedro wilderness, and were headed out to the canyons of the Escalante, but we knew these girls could handle some big mountains. We were scheduled to finish our road loop with a five-day backpack in the Wemenuch wilderness, home to some of Colorado's tallest peaks. Problem was, the permit our organization had for the area was pretty restricted. We were limited to significantly flatter trail that many of the girls, it turned out, had hiked in previous years. The more I read about the Columbine Pass area of the Wamanooch, the more it sounded like the perfect challenge to top off the summer for our girls. Matt was our permits guy. He told me not to get my hopes up, but he was going to help me apply for a special extension on our permit. I didn't take his warning too seriously. Nine girls, a few days, how hard could it be? Of course, I wasn't really too familiar with the whole idea of wilderness permits before I started working at the Gulch. Different national parks and forests have different regulations. I was pretty used to the kind where you show up, maybe pay a small fee, and then you're free to go. The Cottonwood Gulch was considered a commercial outfitter by legal standards, despite being a nonprofit. Most of the places you could just stop and get out if you were out on your own were off-limits to us without a written permit. Some popular parks, like Yosemite, do require individuals to obtain permits before being allowed to hike or camp in certain areas. This isn't the case in the Wemunuch Wilderness. Only outfitters like our group were required to have them, and my understanding was that they're pretty stingy about what they'll allow groups to access. For a place that was supposed to be so wild, I couldn't help but feel trapped in red tape. I was just out here trying to show kids an amazing part of the world. How could they restrict that? Isn't this land supposed to belong to all of us? It gets at my bigger question. If it's restricted, is it really wilderness? We like to associate the idea of wilderness with unpredictability and freedom, not laws. However, like anything else, wilderness does have an important legal definition, spelled out in Congress's Wilderness Act of 1964. A wilderness, in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape, 
is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. The definition goes on to encompass a few other ideas. No permanent improvements, outstanding opportunities for solitude, unconfined recreation, at least 5,000 acres. But beyond that definition, what else is wilderness supposed to be? One of the most famous quotes about wilderness is Edward Abbey's. He says, Wilderness is not a luxury, but a necessity of the human spirit. If I'm being honest, I definitely have that printed on the back of a few Cottonwood Gulch t-shirts. But that's a big claim. A necessity? I feel like there are plenty of people who've never set foot in true wilderness. Abby goes on to talk about how it's not just physical places, but the very idea of wilderness that's important. Abby suggests, Wilderness invokes nostalgia, suggests the past and the unknown. Something lost and something still present, something remote and at the same time intimate, something buried in our flood and nerves, something beyond us and without limit. He admits, it's a romantic view. But there's something I really like about what he's saying. He may have written this in the 60s, but in today's age of Google tracking your location, a Starbucks on every corner, a culture all about investing in yourself, the very idea that there's a place we can go and those things melt away to reveal a land undomesticated, unhurried, open, there's some relief in that, even if you're not there. So who is this Edward Abbey guy? He's one of the canonical Western eco-writers, a live-outdoors sort of hippie type, but passionate, gruff even, in his favoring of the natural world over a civilized one. He's the kind of author who ends up with something of a cult following. One of his books, The Monkey Wrench Gang, features a group of rebel environmentalists. They take drastic measures to sabotage the commercial industries exploiting natural resources, doing things like cutting power lines and contaminating the fuel of bulldozers. David Gessner, who's written quite a bit about Abby, describes him as combative, unpredictable, contradictory, and subtle as a whoopee cushion. His most famous book, Desert Solitaire, is perhaps the quintessential Southwestern outdoorsman's book. Everyone at the Gulch seemed to be currently reading it, or had read it. When I finally picked it up, it wasn't what I expected. It's not the classic action-packed novel about outdoor survival. It reads more like a collection of essays, florid and storytelling at times, but often argumentative and thesis-driven. Desert Solitaire tells stories from Abby's time as a ranger in Arches National Park. It's about the times he almost dies, times he revels in lounging under the stars or looking at a juniper tree, times he has to deal with ignorant tourists, times he rants about how there shouldn't be any paved roads in national parks. If there is a plot, it's somewhat subtle. Abby reveres the desert wilderness, but he can feel, even in the 60s, that the wilderness is under threat. In the introduction to Desert Solitaire, Abby writes, This book is not a travel guide, but an elegy, a tombstone. Because the way Abby sees it, the wilderness is losing its wild, and it won't ever be the same again. Well, I told you that we were going to use literature to explore ideas about nature. 
So besides its upfront definitions of wilderness, what does Desert Solitaire have to say about what we're seeking in wild places? And are permits protecting that? One of my favorite things that Edward Abbey captures about the desert is how dynamic it is. It almost doesn't seem like it at first, with so much rock and so little life. But the more you start to notice the way the whole canyon faces can change their persona as the light shifts from sunrise to high noon, you realize, as Abby notes, it's temperamental, tone and color adapting to suit a new mood as the days and seasons progress. There's something about it that seems to escape both the monotony and hyperstimulation of our everyday lives. Remote areas of wild mountains and forests and deserts have that singular ability to feel both as if they're in a constant state of fluctuation and that they have remained unchanged by thousands of years of human history. Abby talks about the desert in particular as a place that prickles us with the unexpected, the desert. Sparingly colonized by weird mutants from the plant kingdom, most of them as spiny, thorny, stunted, and twisted as they are tenacious. The desert. Sunsets each evening that test a man's credulity. Great, gory improvisations in scarlet and gold. I love the idea that spending time in unfamiliar, even unbelievable places has the power to refresh our ability to notice things. As Abby says, the desert offers... The power of the odd and unexpected to startle the senses and surprise the mind out of their ruts of habit and compel us to reawaken awareness. With this awareness comes focus on the present surroundings and escape from distant pressures and ties. In the wilderness, we find the sense of freedom we sometimes seem to be missing in the front country. Cutting the bloody cord, that's what we feel. The delirious exhilaration of independence. A rebirth backwards in time and into primeval liberty into freedom, in the most simple meaning of the word. Something that seems to go hand in hand with this floating sense of awareness and freedom, especially for Abby, is solitude. He's alone for much of the book and happy to be uninterrupted in his reveries by outsiders. Instead of loneliness, I feel loveliness, he says. While many of us may prefer a bit of company on our adventures, or maybe a small group of teenagers, there's something beautiful about finding a place to be alone. A place you can shout and sing and know that no one else is around to hear. There's nothing worse than camping next to a noisy neighbor. Or, if you're a group of girls, wanting to sing unrestrained around the campfire, but having to hold back in order not to be rude. Large numbers of tourists is something Abby loves to rant about. When he was a ranger from 1956 to 1957, Arches National Park had about 25,000 total visitors. Nowadays, he'd boggle at the sight of nearly one million daily visitors. Keeping out the crowds is one of the biggest goals of permitting. The Columbine Pass area does, admittedly, have some issues with overcrowding. According to their website, during the peak summer period, as many as 150 people are camped in the basin at any one time, and most campsites are taken, so there's little solitude to be found. David Gessner, the modern writer I mentioned earlier, writes a lot about trying to find freedom in the wilderness away from other people. In his book, All the Wild That Remains, he writes, What I want to preserve are not just beautiful places, but the possibility that an individual can, in this overheated, overcrowded world, 
find a place to be quiet and alone. He talks about an experience he has in the Utah desert, trying to find Abby's solitude. Instead, he arrives at his destination to find another man there, stepping on the cryptobiotic soil and furiously taking pictures. Neither of them were happy to be intruded on, so Gessner walks around to the other side of the rock, at least giving them each a half-privacy. So, here we are, out in the wild, chasing that ability to soak it all in, to escape the distractions of other people and our other lives, wanting to find that freedom. Maybe permits are the step toward making that happen, by controlling who's allowed in when, at least those who've been granted a permit have better chances of finding solitude. Could it be that regulating the wilderness is our best strategy for keeping it wild? Or is it impossible for anything so carefully controlled to maintain its wild character? Cottonwood Gulch's legendary founder, Hillis Howie, began the prairie trek in 1928 with the idea that boys should get out and see the West while it was still wild. He and the boys set out in Model T's from Indianapolis to spend over two months on their expedition. This is how Hillis Howie described his mission in a 1938 brochure. The plan is to leave civilization behind and spend the months of July and August in remote and generally unknown regions of the Southwest, to establish temporary camps in sagebrush, pinyon, and big timber, and at ruin sites, deserted mining towns, and alpine lakes, to investigate the fauna, flora, and geology of each territory, to set a standard of camping which will be a satisfaction to ourselves and a model to others, to live a physically vigorous life with a taste of the hardships which the early explorers expected. But Howie thought that this wasn't just important for boys. In 1934, he began the all-girls turquoise trail expedition, with his ahead-of-the-times idea that outdoor education and wilderness exploration should be accessible to young women as well as young men. They, too, left Indianapolis, in ankle-length dresses, to camp, climb mountains, and explore canyons. 2019 marked the 85th anniversary of the Turquoise Trail. Knowing the rich history of the expedition, I felt a responsibility to make sure that our girls could experience that same grandeur and radicalness of the earlier treks. One of the girls in our group even had a great-grandmother who was part of that very first 1934 TT. Each year, TT keeps a written log with daily entries by different girls in the group. Fifty years ago, a high peaks experience in the Columbine Pass areas of the Wemenuch was a traditional part of the Turquoise Trail itinerary, and was certainly a highlight. In the log from 1970, Lori Brown wrote this passage. Soon, we got ready to climb out of the Chicago Basin and over the unconquerable Columbine Pass. We were prepared for another steep journey onto a high mountain land, since the day before, we thought we had found the narrow trail leading only upward. Ascending through forests of loosely knit pines, we went through a wonderland of lush greens. Shafts of sunlight forming, glowing beams danced behind trees in intriguing darker shadows. Patterns of natural beauty spread across the path before you. Sleepy flowers awakened their radiance of unconcerned butterflies. We watched the butterflies soar in its own special flight, carefree, fleeting. Horses were milling about, no person near. Finally, 
upward, muddy earth, succulent space brought about by rain and sun, producing an abundance of wildflowers. Evenly placed, tall yellow, small brighter orange, reaching to suck light from above. We kept looking at the all-embracing view of mountain holiness. Mossy, rock-house, delicate pink alpine, the meek hugging the surface. Continuing higher, jagged rocks remained from massive rock rivers, plunging to their end in previous worlds. Purple-leaved flowers squeezed out from in between lifeless stone. Once on top, wind restless through the body. Cold mixes with sunshine. The strongest feeling is accomplishment, fighting its way through all uncertainty. In our efforts to convince the Columbine Ranger District to allow my group to access the area, Matt and I drafted a letter. We included Lori's 1970 description and the story of TT's history. We sent the letter off, and then we just had to wait and see. Would this story change their mind? The biggest problem with permits is perhaps their biggest asset. They keep people out. With other people out, it's obviously great for the native flora and fauna, and for the solitude of the people who are allowed in. But what about the people whose access is being restricted? Admittedly, this is less of an issue in places like the Wemenuch, where only people coming as part of a commercial or nonprofit group are the ones whose access is being withheld. But it's frustrating that we can't visit lands that are supposed to embody freedom and escape from the thumb of man without a proper piece of paper. As Abby points out, our uninhabited no-man's land is actually all-man's land, right? Policing public lands just feels wrong. Wallace Stegner, another of the canonical Western eco-writers, once said, Lawlessness, like wilderness, is attractive and we conceive the last remaining home of both to be in the West. We want to come to the West to do our thing, to be our wildest selves, to not have to ask anyone for permission. If the people are willing to sacrifice their solitude to head to a popular area, who's the government to stop them? Abby, despite working for the Park Service, was all about keeping the government out of the public lands. He abhors development, like roads or power lines infiltrating national parks. He's something of an anarchist in general, and one of the things he sees as a big asset of wilderness is that it's a place to escape from political oppression. He writes that, Wilderness complements and completes civilization by the knowledge that refuge is available when and if needed. Of course, this becomes paradoxical when you have to ask the government for permission to be there in the first place. Then again, Abby's not the kind of guy who generally argues for accessibility, especially easy accessibility. If he had it his way, he'd ban all cars in national parks and stop putting down pavement in the name of preserving the wilderness. But he also talks about wilderness, if you remember, as a necessity of the human spirit. He seems to think that we could all benefit from a bit more of the natural world in our lives. As Gessner put it, in this modern age, it isn't only wilderness that's being threatened, but human wildness. Paperwork is probably the antithesis of wildness. The problem is, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find places that are actually wild. Abby, even in his day, was dismayed by the inability to escape the din of traffic while standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. He also criticizes Canyonlands National Park, newly established around his time, 
for making the majority of highlight points drivable destinations. It gets rid of any feeling of real exploration or freedom from an outside world. One of my favorite parts of Desert Solitaire is Abby's descriptions of his expedition down the Colorado River. At one point, he goes off to check out a remote side canyon and talks about the feeling of being the only person to set foot there. Has this particular canyon been seen and named by earlier river runners? No doubt it has, but I find not evidence to dispel the illusion that I may be the first ever to have entered here. There's something about pondering whether you're the first human to stand in a particular place that makes you feel at once an important and utterly insignificant part of the world. I remember the first time I felt that way. I was in high school, hiking through the forest at Pictured Rocks National Lake Shore in Michigan's Upper Peninsula with my family. At one point, the trail opened up to reveal a pristine lake surrounded by nothing but trees. I don't know if I'd ever seen a lake that didn't have a single house or dock built around it. It was dizzying to see that there was actually a place that looked probably the same way it had a thousand years ago. I think Abby and I are in agreement that more people could use experiences like that. There's something about really being in it for yourself that's unlike anything else. And it's something with the power to change how we prioritize and defend our environment. A deeply rooted understanding and appreciation of wild lands is one of the most important factors in advocating for their preservation. Are people of our country really willing to make economic sacrifices to protect places they do not know and love? As Abby says, Love of wilderness is more than hunger for what is always beyond reach. It is also an expression of loyalty to the earth. Without this love-rooted loyalty, on a large scale, we can look at the Trump administration's attacks on Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments to see the consequences. Wallace Stegner, the author I mentioned earlier, wrote a powerful passage about the importance of preservation in what has come to be known as his Wilderness Letter. Written in 1960, this letter ended up being important in the passage of the Wilderness Act four years later. In it, he writes, Something will have gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness be destroyed. If we permit the last virgin forests to be turned into comic books and plastic cigarette cases, if we drive the few remaining members of the wild species into zoos or extinction, if we pollute the last clear air and dirty the last clean streams and push our paved roads through the last of the silence so that never again will Americans be free in their own country from the noise, the exhausts, the stinks of human and automotive waste. Yikes. Abby's the kind of author who's made a lot of people reconsider the value of their personal experiences with nature. Stegner, on the other hand, felt more of a responsibility to put his talents to political use. He organized the book This is Dinosaur to advocate against the Upper Colorado River Storage Project. The book was given to every member of Congress and did its job. They voted to end the project. Another collection he put together played a big role in the creation of Escalante National Monument. While I love to see literature having the power to capture the imagination of politicians and the American public, what books like Desert Solitaire illustrate more than anything 
is that the most important thing we can do is literally expose people, especially younger generations, to the natural world. They may trample on the grass or try to bring rocks home in their pockets, but as Stegner says, better a wounded wilderness than none at all. Every time I had the chance to run the half mile across the road to Base Camp's little office with an internet connection, I refreshed my inbox, hoping I'd see some good news about the permit. I bugged Matt about it nearly every day. No news came. That's part of the problem with the way the whole permitting system works. It's not as streamlined as filling out an application online. It's digging through Park Service's websites, calling and negotiating with rangers. It's unpredictable. Maybe a letter would change someone's mind. Maybe they wouldn't be in the mood to read it. In the end, we didn't get the permit extension. The turquoise trail would not be allowed to head into the Columbine Pass. I was pretty bummed. I felt like I was letting down the whole grand history of TT. But behind the scenes, Matt had been working to secure a different permit. Just days before my group was scheduled to leave base camp to head back out on the road, we were granted access to Carson National Forest near Taos, New Mexico. Carson is home to Wheeler Peak, the tallest mountain in New Mexico, coming in at over 13,000 feet. In a flurry, we decided our best option was to rework my itinerary, scratch the Wemenouche backpack, and head out to Carson instead. It was hectic, but it was the best decision I made. The girls were undeniably challenged, but they were ready. We were hiking upwards of 11 miles a day with heavy packs, often over 3,000 feet of elevation gain. The terrain was steep, but every step was worth it. We drank from cold mountaintop streams, ate PB&Js, and took in the spectacular views, camped in remote meadows where we could squeal around the campfire to our heart's content. On our final day, we hiked over 16 miles to the summit of Wheeler Peak. My team and I swelled with pride as we stood back and watched the girls make their way back down the mountain. They were still bouncing with happiness. Though we'd been walking for hours, and despite having been together all summer, they still had endless things to say to each other. Later, one of the girls wrote of this backpacking trip as the first time she'd truly felt proud of something she'd physically accomplished. All in all, it was the perfect ending to our summer. I'm grateful that places like Carson exist. And of course, without someone stepping in to set aside this land, who knows where it would be. This isn't a time where wilderness stays wild on its own. So, I get it. To preserve the solitude, the heightened awareness, the sense of awe we feel in these places, we the people need to be willing to make some sacrifices. Overrunning our lands past capacity isn't going to preserve them for future generations. Permits, unnatural as they may feel, are perhaps the best tool we have. They're trying to change the permitting practices. Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico actually introduced a bill in Congress back in October of 2018 called the Public Land Recreational Opportunities Improvement Act. It's trying to change some of the outdated ways permits are processed to make applying for them more streamlined and predictable. Of course, Heinrich was actually the executive director of Cottonwood Gulch back in the day, so he gets it. 
Though it felt like it at the time, perhaps my biggest problem with the park's permitting system wasn't the administrative headache. It's the bigger idea, the one about whether wilderness is a thing that can be found if it's entangled in regulation. I think it's a contradiction we have to live with. When the Park Service was set up in 1916, it was directed to conserve the scenery and natural and historic objects and wildlife therein, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such a manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. Abby was quick to point out that some people like to focus on the for the enjoyment part, while others like to focus on the leave it unimpaired. Abby, for his part, is perhaps the master of grappling with contradiction. As Gessner notes, all of Abby's statements, no matter how boldly put, are open to second thoughts, or at least second jokes. We catch Abby ranting about cars in one part, speeding joyously through the open desert in another, catch him vowing to live for the wilderness, then pining for civilization. At one point, he says... Balance, that's the secret. Moderate extremism, the best of both worlds. Regulation, wilderness, while they may seem to contradict each other at their very core, maybe, hopefully, they can work together to save our natural wild lands. As Abby puts it, there is, there is not, not mystery, mystery. there There's is only, only paradox. paradox. The incontrovertible union of contradictory truths a falling star which melts into vapor as I grasp it, which flows through my fingers like water, like smoke. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Nature's Narrative. I hope you enjoyed it and you're inspired to share it with friends and family. Let us know what you think of the show by rating and reviewing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was written and produced by me, Emily Stefke. Our music was composed and performed by my talented sister, Madeline Stefke. Special thanks to Ryan Hunt as Edward Abbey and Kenzie Weiler as Laurie Brown. And of course, thanks to Dr. Kristen Mahoney in the English department at Michigan State University for mentoring me through the process of creating this show. You can find more information about the books I discussed today in the show notes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>